Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president and professor of Old Testament here at RTS Washington. I'm joined by Dr. Paul Jean, lecturer in New Testament and senior pastor at New City Presbyterian Church. Dr. Grace Sutanto, systematic theology professor here at RTS. Tommy Keene, uh, our academic dean and professor of New Testament, and Dr. Peter Lee, professor of Old Testament and dean of students. And we are continuing our series on the Apostles' Creed, where we are walking through this classical confession of faith for the church. And we've now come to the article where, and we've talked about this already, there's this kind of slowdown in the creed. We're talking about these grand transhistorical, transcendent ideas God, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And it seems as if the creed slows down to almost a snail's pace, just covering the events of a couple of days here in the middle. Uh, We're in the middle of that slowdown where these beats kind of come slowly. And and, and in a way, actually, the, the beats of this article, the one that we're talking about today, it really slows down to a matter of hours, right? And, and, And this article says this, he was crucified died and was buried. And it's interesting because this is at the heart of the creed. This is, as I said, probably the most sort of slowed down focal point of the creed where we're slowing down and we're looking at these very few events. And yet, if you think about a religion, why is it at the the core of its belief, would you highlight what to many from the outside might say was kind of the failure of its leader, right? You know, it, it wasn't that he ended in this kind of, uh, you know, grand coronation in Jerusalem when he marched in there 2,000 years ago, but that he ends in this event of being crucified, dying, and being buried. So why is it so important to the belief of the Christian to slow down and to take a moment and to focus on these events of just a few hours on the course of this day a couple of millennia ago? So I want to start with that question. Let me start with Dr. Lee. I want to put this to you because as an Old Testament professor, I want you to draw out for us what, what is the anticipation that the Old Testament is creating that finds its you know, fulfillment, that, that adumbrates this event of the crucifixion, the death, and the burial of Christ? Yeah, it just hearing it the way you put it, it does uh, kind of boggle the mind a little bit that we put the death of Christ so central. In many ways, I think we have to remember that the whole concept of death or, or Jesus dying on the cross is wasn't just any death. Jesus dying on the cross uh, really was an act of sacrifice. It was uh, on our behalf. Uh, and in that sense, the death of Christ was very much consistent with uh, so many profound and powerful themes and images of the Old Testament of sacrifice. And for that reason, we see so much of the Old Testament's portrait of the sacrificial system coming to its most fullest realization in the death of Christ. And for that reason, he had to die. There had to be a penalty, or there was a penalty for sin. That penalty had to be paid. The whole sacrificial system was set up in such a way to to remind ancient Israelites that that was in fact the case. And so the, the, the death of Christ on the cross as an act of sacrifice was a necessary thing uh, for our salvation. And something, again, we, uh, I think we may take for granted just because we connect the two so clearly, but uh, that's such an important idea to keep in mind. 
Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, that there's this this idea throughout the Old Testament that in order for your sins to be covered, for, for, for sin to be responded to, there's this system of sacrifices, which is interesting because the sacrifices also cover a variety of different aspects of sin. There's there's the meal that's shared again with God. There's the there's the sending out of the sin out of the camp. There's the paying back of the debt. You know, all of these things are pointing to these different aspects of sin and transgression and iniquity and all these words that we find in the Old Testament talking about this disobedience, this transgression of the covenant. And yet there's also this kind of like, you know, you know, sotto voce, like this kind of soft voice in the background saying, but it's not about the sacrifices of these animals, right? You know, you, you find this with Samuel speaking to Saul and Saul's, Saul's using the sacrificial system as this kind of like get out of jail free card, right? He, he kept the Amalekite spoils so that he could sacrifice them later. And Samuel points out, don't you know that the, it, it's not about the sacrifices? It's about faithfulness, right? <laughs> Basically. And, and the prophets bring this up, Jeremiah and his temple sermons, Jesus himself cleansing the temple. He's highlighting the fact that these sacrifices, Peter, as you, you so well put it, are, are, are pointing towards this other thing. I think there's this subtle suspicion in the Hebrew Bible that it doesn't make sense that these sacrifices cover our sins. I wonder, I think, it, I, who was it? I think it was reading Voss just this past week and how he even alluded to that idea that that the Old Testament Israelites would have been cognizant of that. They, they would have known these Old Testament, these animal sacrifices are not adequate uh, for the sins of, of image bearers. That the language there in Leviticus that this is for the atonement of sin for that reason is more sacramental language than, than actual atonement. And for that reason, just already by the nature of an animal being a substitute is not, not and thus not being adequate, is already pointing to a future perfect sacrifice implicitly which is maybe why too with with like the suffering servant for instance in isaiah this idea that the suffering servant could have a have an a, some kind of vindicating death that would vindicate others right that would heal others is not thought of as like well no wait we've got animals we've got animals for that don't you know or something like that but this idea that there's this future person there's this future character that is the suffering servant who is going to have this kind of atoning death. You know, it's kind of posited out there as a future expectation. Yeah, Scott, you know, it's been helpful for me, just this comment you've been making about how the uh, creed slows down, actually. That's actually been helpful. And, you know, I wonder if this uh, slowing down and this focus on the death of Christ echoes even what Jesus says in the high priestly prayer, where um, when he talks about his hour coming as the hour when the Father is most glorified. I think it's helpful to just remember that it's the cross, particularly in the death of Christ, that Jesus seems to say God is most glorified. And that is a kind of very foreign concept, not just to the original audience, but to us even today. Like, how is it that God receives most glory in this like seemingly horrific act of the crucifixion. But you know, many pastors, theologians have noted this, and I still find this always most helpful that in Jesus's death, we see like the full manifestation of God's commitment, both to his holiness, where he must punish for sin. And that, you know, we've talked about should bring tremendous comfort to people because we see that God is infinitely committed to justice, even if that means uh, sacrifice of his own son. 
But at the same time, in Jesus's death, we also see the manifestation of God's love where he will go through great lengths to save us because ultimately we cannot save ourselves. And so this idea of slowing down in this um, part of the creed and focusing on the death of Christ and what it signifies about the glory of God, I, I, I find it to be helpful. It gets at the fact that this is, and, and Peter mentioned this as well, that this is no mere death. And when you look at liberal theology or popular theology, you can you you see something that's true about Jesus' death. You know, in, in popular theology, Jesus was was martyred for this idea of of universal love. Uh, in liberal theology, that then is an example to us. Cl classic liberalism, you know, it's it's this is an example to us to to love the brothers, to to love the whole world and things like that and jesus death certainly does that but it's more than a mere martyrdom in fact it can't be an example it can't be more uh, a, a martyrdom unless he died for something and the thing that he died for is of course us he he died for us in our place and that brings out along with that old testament biblical theological revelation the precedent that's set for that for thinking about atonement as the function of sacrificial death, we get then this beautiful doctrine of he he died for our sakes or in our place so that his death is our death. Um, so that we really see this as more than just exemplary, more than just martyrdom, more than just a display of God's love, but a, a display of God's love that is effective, that brings about forgiveness, that brings about the, the fullness of God's wrath against Christ for our sakes and for our transgressions. Doctrinally, uh, penal substitutionary atonement is the kind of core of this, uh, of the efficacy of Christ's death for our sakes. I think oftentimes when we think about Jesus Christ having to die for our sins, we think about the Pauline text. I think we mentioned Romans 5, 6 uh, last time when we talked about Jesus Christ suffering on the cross, right? But I think we also miss that this is actually Jesus' own self-conscious understanding of his own mission. When we turn, for example, to Mark 10, 45, right? He actually says very explicitly that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That Christ's self-understanding of his own role is actually not just to come as a teacher or as, or as an example, but precisely so that he would get on the cross and so that he would die as a ransom for many. He knew that his death actually was in service of a particular mission, wasn't it? Gray, I wonder if you could comment on this as well. Like, you know, penal substitutionary atonement has gotten a lot of bad press historically, obviously, but also, you know, contemporary theologians uh, ha have talked a lot about it. You know, is, is God a cosmic child abuser is god does this demonstrate just a, a wrath-filled god that is inconsistent with what we would what we would want a good god to be do you have any comments on that yeah i think that particular objection first of all misses a basic understanding of trinitarian theology right because the father and the son don't have separate wills so it's not as if the father willed that the son would be suffering for the sake of the many, but then the son resisted the father's will, but then was beaten into submission or something like that. But rather given the unity of the divine will, God, the father, God, the son, God, the spirit, having that same will, 
you know, the Trinitarian God willed the salvation of the many by showing that the Father sent the Son and the Son would die for the people and the Spirit would apply that redemption to God's people. But I also think another facet that that kind of objection misses is something that the Heidelberg Catechism actually brings out. If you take a look at what the Heidelberg Catechism says about the suffering and the death and the burial of Jesus Christ, one of the first things it says to the question, I have it open here, why did Christ have to suffer death is actually the first answer according to the catechism is because God's justice and truth requires it. And I love that they offer a citation of a biblical reference and it's to Genesis 2.17, right? Which is that God had warned Adam that should he eat of the tree, he would surely die. And yet at the same time, when we take a look at Genesis chapter three, he ate of the tree and he didn't die, but an animal died in his place. And Adam's guilt, so to speak, and shame was covered up by the skin of an animal. And now you're thinking to yourself, I thought he was supposed to die. And how can the blood of an animal cover it? Since, you know, Scott and Paul and Peter and all of you, you know, Tommy, you've all brought out the fact that the animals couldn't have covered the sins of uh, Adam at that point, right? So there's a lingering question in Genesis 2. How can Adam just be let off the hook? And so the first answer of why Christ had to suffer death was because God's truth required it. If mankind is the one that sins, then only human being can pay the penalty. Only human being can suffer the penalty and consequences of his sin. So the incarnation, again, I think solves that particular conundrum. Only God could save, but at the same time, only human being sinned. And so only a God-man can save to the utmost. That's such a great point. You know, this I, Walter Brueggemann in his Old Testament theology, when he's reflecting on that, that promise of judgment that the Lord gives in the garden when he says if, on that day that you eat of this, and he rightly points out that the Hebrew construction there is this factative construction. You know, on the day that you eat of it, you will indeed die. You will surely die. It's you're, you're that, that's a I'm, I'm not speaking metaphorically now. I'm speaking literally, right? As if he were to say, and then when they don't die, Brueggemann says, uh, quite controversially, as Brueggemanns want to do, he says, and that shows us that that was the first lie. Okay, that on that day you will surely die because they didn't die. Okay. And I think a lot of Christians have tried to get around this by saying, well, they spiritually died or they began the process of dying and, and those kinds of things. Um, but I think to do that is to miss that point that you're making, Gray, which is as the last Adam, Christ is in, in his, his typological union with Adam, okay, Christ is taking upon himself the death that was promised way back in Genesis 2. I know you just said that, but just that's so important because that sets the agenda for redemptive history, right? That's kind of the story of the Bible. How is he going to die? How are we going to deal with God's justice in light of his love and his favor toward humanity? It's such an important point. You can see how for like for Calvinism historically, that's, you know, this idea of Christ being a last Adam really does kind of create what's going to later become redemptive historical, biblical, theological readings of the Bible, because it's so important. This is the, this is the arc of the narrative of salvation. Right. Hey. And go, go ahead, Tommy. Nope. You. All right. I'm going to go. Okay. Go Peter. <laughs> yeah, Scott, that's uh, uh, that statement by uh, Walter Brueggemann is really has the kind of a rhetorical shock value. God lied because you know you said he said 
you know, on the day you eat of this, you will certainly die. He doesn't die. Uh, I think it's, and to, to emphasize what you were saying about what Gray was saying earlier, it, it really is so important to remember the order in which God came to give his words of condemnation there in Genesis 3. He starts with a serpent and his word of condemnation against the serpent saying that a seed of the woman will come to crush his head requires then the continual line of Adam. In other words, the word of curse against a serpent presumes life to Adam, which means embedded in the curse against a serpent is already atonement, is already the, the idea that there is a necessity for that line to continue. So the atonement, you could say, for that reason is already kind of working and the concept that that Jesus will die for us is already, and in His death is our victory, is already uh, uh, setting that uh, agenda, that new programmatic uh, direction in uh, in place. You could say, and so I think the order there, starting with a serpent, not immediately jumping to Adam and Eve, uh, is important in terms of setting that 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 trend. That's excellent. Yeah, that there's this the, the battle between the two seeds. Right, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent comes out of the fall and finds its fulfillment. It finds its its climax, its endpoint in Christ, and in a way, in Christ going to the cross. Right, this is where he's crushing the head of the serpent, and that's is, is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and and that's where when we get this aspect of Christ going to the cross, I remember asking this question back in seminary and still kind of wrestling with it. And the question goes like this, when Christ goes to the cross, is he going as a sacrificial lamb or is he going as a conquering king? And I think you kind of have to say yes, right? <laughs> you know, he's, he's, yeah. he's, he's embodying both. He's fulfilling two different aspects of redemptive history in taking his, taking his place on the cross, will, you know, willing himself, right? Because he's not, he's not, it's not against his will, but it's... Uh, uh, you know, willfully taking his place on the cross. He, he's doing both. Yeah, you, you see you see that tension actually even in the Gospels. The synoptics tend to emphasize the the cross as the, as the climax of Jesus' suffering, as, as kind of the worst possible moment. We're at the, we're, we're in the depths of the earth here and from which Jesus needs to be redeemed. He needs to be raised uh, out of that curse, rescued out of that curse. Whereas in John, bo- both sets do, do both things, but in John, the real emphasis is on the cross as a victory. It, it is there where we see Jesus doing the will of God in par excellence. We, we see it at its, at its culminating point, at the hardest point, Jesus chose thy will, not my will be done. Uh, and it's, it's at that point that we see his victory over temptation that the devil would offer the cares of this world, all of that, Jesus demonstrates his, his conquest in the cross, not in the resurrection so much, but in the, in the cross. Can, can, let me take it in this direction a little bit. I do want to highlight, cause we're talking about the crucifixion. We're talking about the cross and the creed, you know, tells us to do that. It says he was crucified. That's kind of, that's kind of precise, right? I mean, it doesn't say he died and was buried. Why, why do you, why do you think um, of course, the creed doesn't come with a with a commentary uh, by its authors. But why why do we think it highlights the fact that he was crucified? Why this Roman form of of uh, capital punishment being highlighted here? 
I wonder if it has something to do with what preceded with the suffered under Pontius Pilate, and thus he was sub- subject to the uh, the kangaroo court, and now he is suffering the consequences, the the poisoned fruit, so to speak, of that, and that being now execution, and thus crucifixion, and you know crucifixion. He was crucified, he died, does seem to be kind of repetitive, uh, but one sort of is continuing the line of the, the fact that his, his death is unjust. It, it, was, cru- it was crucifixion, thus it, it's historical. It's not uh, something that is fabricated. It's not just thinking out loud. It is something that would have been uh, visible, uh, verifiable, and that in his crucifixion, he died in something to uh, always remember that it, it, he didn't just faint as certain theories of the, of, uh, of the cross goes, he died. There was real death and real penalty uh, of sin then that was satisfied and he was buried. Uh, so anyhow, I wonder if the, if the crucifixion there being placed where it is just allows a transition point from the idea of, um, of Christ being uh, subject to the to the false claims of the courts, he for that reason his crucifixion truly was unjust, and as a result of that he died and so forth. Yeah, I think that there's definitely a good point here to be made about emphasis, isn't there? That he was crucified, he died, and he was buried, right? Which I think looking forward to uh, where the creed goes with this, which is that Christ resurrected it makes us certain that God really did resurrect him from the dead, that this was not just, again, like you said, Peter, a fainting that he suddenly, you know, just survived the crucifixion. No, he actually died and he was buried. And in fact, the Heidelberg Catechism brings this out once again. It actually asks the question, why was he buried? In other words, why did the creed have to mention that he was buried? And it gives a very terse answer. His burial testifies that he really died. That's a crucial point that we have to make here because then resurrection becomes all the more emphasized just as Lazarus dying for three days already emphasizes that Jesus' miracle was a real miracle. So does his burial now show forth that he will be resurrected truly by God. And I think the point about Lazarus is really good. I was thinking the same thing. We're kind of given a primer on death and burial in the Lazarus story, right? And we hear them say, don't open it up because his body's rotting in there, right? It's going to smell. it's interesting that kind of like gives us that little piece of information it's not as if you can hide away in this cave you know this isn't for living bodies that have swooned or fallen asleep you know this is this is for bodies that are decaying and that's what it is you would bury you know the the practice in those days you would bury someone in a tomb until uh their body completely decayed and then of course their box their, their bones would be gathered together into an ossuary or a bone box and then they would probably be buried alongside their ancestors somewhere in a family in a family crypt so it's interesting isn't it that that we kind of get this primer on what happens when you're in the ground for three days and of course what's remarkable about christ is that that's not what happens right it's it's, it's they, they go to prepare his body and the body's not there, but we're getting ahead of ourselves now. It's really interesting how, you know, crucified, died, and buried, how just ordinary it is. So to, to, to Gray's point, you know, and, and the, the Heidelberg's point, you know, it underlines the Jesus died in a kind of an expected way. There was not a, there's not a point at which he displayed anything other than what a true human would, ha- would happen to a true human in these circumstances. He, cru- he was crucified. He really died. And, and he was really buried and burial in that 
time period is, and in ours, you know, is very much a public thing. It, it is part of the, the public record and the testimonial that is going to take place. We know that he was buried in the ordinary way. We have accounts of uh, how he was buried. And that's really helpful to us to underline the reality of his suffering, the, the, the reality of his death, and that these things actually took place in, in time and space. These aren't spiritualized ideas, but are actual, actual events that our Lord experienced. And Peter, it reminded me of a conversation I remember you and I having about, about the crucifixion. We were in your office and we we're talking about the, the particularities of crucifixion and how it's, it's one of those kind of rare instances where the Romans and the Jews agree on something. They both agree that this is a particularly cursed way to die. I wondered if you'd share your reflections on that. Yeah, well, the, you know, from a Roman standpoint, you know, it's humiliating death, it's public, and and you're so vulnerable, even uh, the New Testament even refers to, you know, the crucifixion in terms of that Deuteronomic curse, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Uh, so it, it definitely wants to see that, and thus, so here now you're bringing in, you know, the, the Roman idea, a Gentile idea of crucifixion as being humiliating, the highest form of suffering. Then also a, a, a Jewish idea put, pulling in from Deuteronomy that his his death on the cross, his crucifixion is a form of curse. Uh, it's not just humiliation. He's being cursed of God. And it's tying in both concepts there uh, together. And it, um, yeah, I don't remember if I said anything more that day. <laughs> That's helpful. I, I, I found that really insightful. Just this is something, this is a kind of public sign. It's very much tied to its time. We don't need to make any, you know, speculative remarks about it being the worst possible way to die or something like that. But from a from from in its time, it is the worst possible way to die in its time. And and symbolically, it functions, it, it speaks both to the Jew and, and the Greek. And to both, it says, this is someone cursed of the gods. There's not an ambiguity in it. And so in addition to it's it demonstrating Jesus's true humanity, the reflections that we've already made on, on atonement and its function as an atoning work, we also see that those aspects would be symbolically portrayed precisely through the act of crucifixion, that it, it is meaningful to everyone who saw it. This is particularly shameful way to die. I think our conversation so far has really brought out the atoning benefits of Jesus's death, burial, and of course, crucifixion. And since we've already opened up the Heidelberg Catechism before, I just want to bring up two more benefits here that the Heidelberg Catechism pointed out that I think is really useful. Because again, we think about the cross and we think about the death of Christ, we think about justification, right? That's the benefit that we receive from Christ. And it's interesting here that the Heidelberg Catechism brings in two more benefits of our union with Christ in this matter namely that of glorification and also of sanctification. So the next question the Heidelberg Catechism asks this question, since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? That's actually a question that I've heard before from one of my nephews who was like eight at the time. And he says, if Jesus died for me and God's no longer wrathful at us, why do I still have to die later on? And here's the Catechism's answer. Our death does not pay the debt of our sins, Rather, it puts an end to our sinning 
and as our entrance into eternal life. In other words, for those of us who are in union with Christ, our death is no longer as a penalty for our own sins, but rather it is an entrance into glorification, right? Our death puts an end to sinning and is an entrance to eternal life. So the next question, it also brings forward the benefit of sanctification. What further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? Well, the answer is by Christ's power, our old selves are crucified, put to death and buried with him so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer rule us, but that instead we may offer ourselves as a grace, as a sacrifice, sorry, of gratitude to him. So that now what's being brought into view is Romans chapter six, verses five to 11, isn't it? That somehow in a very mysterious way, when Jesus Christ died on that cross, we too, as those in union with him, died with him. If the head of the body dies, the body has died with the head. And if he had died on the cross, so did our old selves. And now we can put on a new self. And this is, of course, we can appeal to resurrection once again. We're going to be resurrected fully in our bodies. But right now, we have a new resurrected self within us by virtue of Christ's work. And, and we participate in that work because of our union with him. And so I think that's a full orbed soteriology, isn't it? Tethered to Christology in the Heidelberg Catechism. Jesus Christ's death on the cross, not only offering us justification, it also shows us that we can enter into glory through death because our death is no longer now a penalty for sin. And it's also showing us sanctification that in the death of Christ, we too have died with him. And so we can pursue a new life before the Lord. That's a great application of why this is so important. We've talked about how the historicity of, of the crucifixion, death and burial of Christ is so important that we have these events that these are not, you know, they're not metaphorical. They're not, they're not emblematic, but they're actually historical, literal events. And they need to take place because we need to be united in them. And I think again, that kind of answers that question of what do we do with the just God in the old Testament who nevertheless says that he loves his people and shows them mercy you know, and we don't really get the answer in the Old Testament. And, and, I, and I think about this a lot when I'm teaching the Psalms or in the prophets and people say, well, what do we do with all of these judgment oracles about the Lord saying that, the, that you know, he, he cannot stand, he cannot withstand iniquity and transgression. And the answer, of course, is he can't. It has to be punished. And that's why when we talk about Christian salvation, we're not talking about a God who forgives and forgets. He, his justice must be meted out, and it is meted out upon each one of us in Christ. It's going to be meted out on you one way or the other. It's going to be either in Christ or it's going to be in the final judgment, but it has to be, it has to be applied because of his holiness, because of his love of justice. You know, and, and so when Paul says things like that, like in Galatians 2.20, you know, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me, he's, I think, giving voice to this idea that it's not as if God just said, well, I'll forget your sins. Like, no, they had to be, they had to be judged and they're judged in Christ. And that's why when we're offering the, the gospel to someone, when, you, when you're presenting someone with the gospel, you really are presenting them with their own death. You're saying, however, ha ha have your death. It's going to come one way or another because of sin, but have it be meted out on Christ and not on your own head. Amen. I'll tell you, Grace, I so appreciate you bringing in the uh, Heidelberg Catechism. My first ministry, by the way, was in the uh, Christian Reformed Church where we had to you know, study the catechism on a regular basis. It's been a while since I've done so, and, and sometimes I forget just how truly elegant and beautiful 
the the way that they portray the, the these truths i had a lot of different thoughts as you were talking about it uh it, it's so intriguing how we look at the crucifixion uh both as an atoning event but how, how the catechism uh, describes it also as sort of glorification the way it, it, it sort of packages it all together in that one event and, and i can't help but to wonder you know the the article here in the in the in the creed was crucified, died, and was buried. I wonder if that idea of buried is not necessarily a part of his humiliation, but subtly also transitioning in his the exaltation. And, and the reason why I bring that up is um, it, it, there's something funny about burial in the Old Testament. Because it's not always, um, in some sense, burial in the Old Testament is a form of is not a form of curse necessarily, because cursedness would be not being buried. Your dot, your body is decaying out there in the field, being eaten by ravenous birds and 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 bees, and it's just decaying and decomposing out there publicly. But to be buried actually is could be seen as a form of covenant blessing that uh, you actually are given dignity to be put back into the earth. I can't help but to wonder, even the whole Abraham, Isaac, Jacob idea, when Jesus was asked um, about resurrection and his answer was that he is a God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, meaning that he is a God of the living. You know, one of the common denominators of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were all buried, but buried in the land. Uh, was Is burial in the land, perhaps in the Old Testament, implicit of life and thus resurrection implicitly? There's this uh, fantastic passage that uh, Meredith Klein, my teacher, you would refer to in Isaiah 26, where he is describing the sort of cosmic global act of wrath of God being poured upon the wickedness of the earth and how the remnant, the elect, are being told by God to go into your bedroom chamber where he will close the doors behind you. But the word bedroom bedroom chamber there is an allusion actually to to death, the bedroom of death, where you actually are being buried in death. But in death, your bodily death, you're being protected and shielded from the wrath of God that's around you. And in that sense, being into the bedroom chamber and your death is actually a form of rest because you're not subject to the uh, to the wrath that is around you. And then there is resurrection that comes after that because you were buried first then you come back to life uh, dr klein actually alluded isaiah 26 to the flood account closing the doors behind you is the same phrase that you see in the ark where uh, the lord closes the doors of the ark behind uh, noah and his family as they are now surrounded by cosmic global acts of wrath and yet here is this ark that is essentially the picture of salvation uh and how Isaiah 26 seems to be interpreting Noah and his family in the ark as a form of death, protected from the wrath of God that is around them. And when they come out of the ark, it is resurrection. You know, So is burial in the Old Testament possibly alluding to the concept then of, of resurrection life? And, and, and I, want, I can't help but to wonder if, if the, and even in 1 Corinthians 15, if I remember right, that, that sort of brief creedal phrase there that Paul says, you know, that Jesus died on the cross according to the, according to the scriptures. And then he says, doesn't he say that he was buried and then rose again according to the scriptures? So burial and res resurrection 
are connected together as being according to the scriptures, uh, as if they're two sides of the same coin. And so, so anyhow, I, I can't help but to wonder if if that burial idea there in the uh, in the creed, as it is biblically, is setting us up now for the transition from the humiliation of Christ, crucified, dead, buried, to the exaltation of Christ, his resurrection, uh, ascension, session, and glorification. I think that's an excellent point, Peter. And it's interesting, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, the metaphor that Paul uses is the, to talk about burial is, is a seed being planted in the ground. So maybe that anticipates our discussion that's in a couple of weeks, the resurrection of the dead. It's worth repeating, therefore, that Christ's life and also the gospel is encapsulated in both his humiliation and exaltation, right? That you can't separate these two things. When you think about Christ's mission, he came to be humiliated and he will be exalted. And to bring it back to an earlier discussion too, you know, Christ had to die because God's justice and righteousness was at stake because he had told Adam that if he were to sin, then he would surely die, and yet he didn't die. So God's righteousness was always in question. But then if Christ remained dead, God's justice would also be in question, because an innocent man can't stay dead, right? I think this is the point that Paul brings out in the beginning of Romans chapter 4. So he had to be resurrected. So I think both uh, that particular point of God's justice being in, under question, and also Peter's point about how burial brings into view, I think, a transition towards exaltation because exaltation is the complementary point to Christ's humiliation, uh, brings to view that, that fullness of Christ's work in this mission. That's wonderful. As those who are tutored in the Old Testament, you know, we, we've, we've become used to that process of death and burial leading to resurrection, whether it's, as you mentioned, Peter, Noah's Ar- Noah in the Ark or the Red Sea, or David in Psalm 40 being brought out of the pit of destruction and placed on the solid ground, or Jonah, which Jesus, of course, links himself to, that this is the sign of Jonah by going into the ground, going into Sheol, as it were, for this period of time. Our, our minds have been trained and formed to, to this thing that Christ is now going to be the fulfillment of, right? Preparing us and training us to understand what it is that he's doing and perhaps to see it, you know, see, see it in that light. But I think as we close, one thing to be reminded of, and this is, uh, of course, anticipating our next discussion as well, but this death on the cross, I think, Tommy, you'd mentioned this, death on the cross doesn't need to be the worst kind of death because that's not, that's not the fullness of the judgment that Christ is receiving. And it is, it is the judgment of God that's being placed on him as a bearer of the sins of the many, right? To the point that there he is on the cross, and as he's about to give himself up willfully again, it's important here to highlight this, as he's about to give himself up unto death, he declares it's finished, right? The judgment has been satisfied. The curse has been quenched. And it happens there on the cross. And it's more than just the sum of its parts, right? It's more than just the crucifixion, the act of crucifixion. It's the whole of receiving the judgment of the sins of his people upon himself. And it's complete and it's full. And Jesus tells us so, right? He tells us so. He says, it's finished. 
and he goes to the grave. And actually, I think, Peter, that, that sort of draws us to your point. He says it's finished and then he's buried, right? <laughs> you know, it, it really is this. It's uh, it's highlighting that the, the work of judgment's over. And now we can move on to the the com- The tragedy has come to an end. Now we can move on to the comedy, right? Which is the resurrection. And uh, I was talking to Dick Gaffin the other day and I was, I was reminded how he says, you should never just say the death. You should always say death hyphen and hyphen resurrection. You know, this is all one word, death and resurrection. And so as we close on this discussion, we close with that note of hope, looking forward to the next stage of the event, which is the resurrection from the dead. So thank you, brothers, for this conversation. It's always a joy to talk with you. And, uh, and for those listening at home, thank you for joining us in this conversation. And we look forward to seeing you next time. So until then, take care. I have a right. random question because you guys are so resourceful. Is I feel like Timo would be able to answer this. Is there a shirt company that sells shirts that like they're not small but they're not medium? They're right in between. Timo, I feel like you would know this. What no? would you know this? I don't know what I feel like you're a fashionado. Well, me, what so what's the problem? What's the I'm problem? not I don't fit I don't fit small, but I don't fit medium. So I'm looking for like a, a medium or something. I, I get it. Anyway, that, get it. that's been on my mind. I just wanted to share that. I'm, you, I'm helping Gray in his cause. But you're looking at something relatively cheap. You're not looking at spending a lot. Oh, of, of course. No, 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 no. no. Less than $20. Have you tried shopping in like the boys department? <laughs> I have actually. <laughs> Thanks, yeah. Tommy. You're welcome. Again, deepening our relationship. <laughs> Brooks Brothers boys. I don't know. Actually, well, actually you know, I, mean, I get boys socks. It works. And they're very affordable. Have you tried a medium from Uniqlo too? Uniqlo is usually sized down a little bit. Yeah, I have. It's okay. a little too big. All right. Yeah, Uniqlo is very reliable. And that's more fashion info than I've gained in all of 2020.